Many countries around the world have now changed their policies to legalize cannabis, and we're beginning to be able to appraise the outcomes of these policy changes. If Canada moves in this direction of legalization or decriminalization of cannabis, it will be important to create a policy framework with public health best practice in mind. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Cheryl Spitoff, Addiction Medicine Specialist and Family Physician at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. In an analysis article published in CMAJ, Dr. Spitoff and her co-authors look at cannabis legalization policies in other countries, and they also discuss how Canada should proceed. Hello, Cheryl. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. Our readers will know that cannabis has been de facto legal in the Netherlands for quite some time now. But what has happened recently in terms of policy changes in other countries? So there's actually been quite a few changes in the last few years. Uh, Uruguay announced back in 2012 that they were planning to legalize cannabis and the bill passed in 2013. So in Uruguay now, citizens are able to grow their own cannabis, share with others in cannabis social clubs. And fairly soon, probably early 2016, cannabis will be available in pharmacy stores as well. Four American states have also legalized cannabis through ballot initiatives. These are Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Alaska. And similar to Uruguay, they've legalized production, sale, and use of cannabis. And as you mentioned, the Netherlands has de facto legalization, which is quite a limited form of legalization. So they decriminalized cannabis back in the 1970s, started to tolerate small amounts of sales in coffee shops, um, however, the supply chain, the production is still all illegal and grow ups are regularly shut down in the Netherlands. Have there been lessons learned? Yes. So over the last 20 to 30 years, we've learned that the war on drugs has failed, that prohibition of cannabis does not work. Um, studies consistently show that prohibition of cannabis does not lead to lower rates of use. And prohibition also causes uh, a lot of harms, harms to the user, um, things like criminal records, prison time, fines, stigmatization, marginalization, barriers to treatment, etc. In Canada at present, 60,000 people every year are arrested for marijuana possession. This makes up over 50% of all drug arrests. And currently there's about 500,000 Canadians who have a criminal record for marijuana possession. Society is also harmed by prohibition. As a result of prohibition, money flows into the illegal markets. This funds criminal gangs and violence. Uh, it also costs society a lot through policing, enforcement, prisons, etc. The estimate is that Canada spends $1.2 billion every year enforcing marijuana prohibition. So this is why many jurisdictions are now exploring decriminalization or legalization of cannabis. So knowing that there are harms from cannabis prohibition, what have been the outcomes that have been shown from our limited experience from other jurisdictions legalizing or decriminalizing cannabis? To date, we don't have a lot of evidence or information from legalization of cannabis. It's mostly information about what's happened in the Netherlands. And we know that rates there over time have fluctuated, as they have in many other countries. Currently, they're, they're quite low. This may be attributed to their model of legalization. Um, there may be other factors as well. Decriminalization has been studied more, and um, evidence shows that there's 
no increase in use with decriminalization. And if anything, it seems to um, go down and um, society benefits from saving on policing and court costs and things like that. Uh, most of what we know about different policies and how they affect rates of use and harms from um, psychoactive substances is from tobacco and alcohol. There's extensive research done on those two substances. Now in Canada, we're coming up to a federal election, and this may or may not be a big election issue. But uh, where do the federal parties stand in terms of legalization of cannabis? And might we be seeing an eventual change in policies here in Canada? Yes, so the political parties are across the spectrum. Conservatives have stated they won't be making any changes or they're not planning on making any changes. Um, there's actually been an increase in the number or the rate of arrests for marijuana possession during the time that the Conservatives have been in power. Um, they've also made um, laws more strict around trafficking and um, production of cannabis with mandatory minimums. Um, the Liberals have stated they will legalize cannabis and the NDP plans to decriminalize cannabis. I guess depending on how the election goes, which is hard to predict at this point, we could see a change. And if we were to move towards decriminalization or legalization, what sort of policy framework should we proceed towards, in your opinion? So my recommendation would be legalization. Um, decriminalization is a good first step. It removes those criminal penalties. There's less stigma uh, for people that use cannabis, fewer barriers to treatment. We also save on enforcement costs. However, there are significant limitations with decriminalization. Um, people still have to access the illegal markets to get cannabis, um, especially for youth. This puts them at risk of encountering other illicit substances. For example, in the Netherlands, only 10% of people report they can get other drugs from their cannabis supplier, whereas in most other countries, 50% um, state that they can get other drugs from their cannabis dealer. Um, the other limitation is that money is still funneled into illegal markets, supports criminal gangs, and the government has a very limited ability to achieve its public health goals. They're not able to stop sales to minors. They're not able to control prices. Therefore, um, I would recommend legalization with comprehensive governmental controls. So we've learned a lot from um, tobacco and alcohol, what um, policies are able to meet public health objectives. And... Um, these are things like higher prices will reduce demand, limiting accessibility through reduced hours, uh, amounts of sales, banning sales to minors. All of these things are effective. So these things should be the mechanisms to achieve the public health objectives. And we should set specific goals that we hope to reach. So some goals are, and I've listed these in the article as well, delayed onset of use by youth, reduced risky use, um, this is impaired driving, um, low rates of problematic use and addiction, maximum public safety, reduced drug-related crime, and minimal stigmatization and marginalization of users. So we can use what we've learned from tobacco and alcohol and what we've learned from other jurisdictions to ensure that we meet these goals. And you outline in your article, as you mentioned, or of coming from a public health point of view, that we should be prudent in looking at the lessons that public health has taught us in other areas. What lessons have we learned from tobacco and alcohol, for instance? Yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of different things that we've been able to learn. Um, a couple of the, the main things are 
One is that establishing a central governmental uh, monopoly over supply sales is uh, a great way to achieve the public health objectives. So in this approach, the government acts as the central purchaser from the growers and then sells um, perhaps cannabis in the future um, at its own stores or licensed stores to the, to the general public. Um, the governmental commission agency doesn't have the same incentive to increase sales as a private enterprise might, and they're more easily able to achieve public health goals. So they can set quotas, they can control prices, they can limit the number of locations. Research has shown they're better at enforcing um, bans on sales to minors as well. Uh, this model is widely used for alcohol. Um, it came into place after prohibition in many states and provinces and European countries and is still used in a lot of those places. The other thing that we've learned from alcohol and tobacco is how important it is to ban all forms of promotion. With promotion, we tend to see um, an expansion in, in harms and well, an expansion in use, which leads to an expansion in harms. And it's important not just to prevent or to stop some forms of promotion, but all of it, because money will just shift to the other forms. Say we ban you know, TV advertising, then it just shifts to print or online or things like that. So um, corporations, when they have a way to get into the market, they are often end up being large entities with a lot of money who are able to effectively to market and advertise and also to lobby governments for um, favorable legislation. So it's really important to, to block the rise of big cannabis. We were talking about this amongst the editors at CMAJ the other day, and it seems that the current model of medically legalized cannabis in Canada is almost driving the big cannabis industry, because we're seeing these big groups, almost like big pharma. Yeah, it is a big concern, because in some ways, we think we have a blank slate now to create these these laws and regulations and policies, but there already are a lot of players, private organizations, um, corporations, who have a vested interest in this market and want to see it expand. So it's likely they are already spending a lot of effort, money, on making sure that policies go in the direction that they want. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Cheryl Spitoff, addiction medicine specialist and family physician at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. To read the analysis article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.